Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Kevin Morris is a second-year PhD student in sociology at the Graduate Center CUNY. He is also a quantitative researcher at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. The democracy program where he works focuses on voting rights and elections. His research focuses on the impact of laws and policies on access to the polls with a particular focus on rights restoration and voter list maintenance. Morris has published a number of journal articles and a forthcoming book chapter on voter suppression in the United States. In June this year, he testified in the U.S. House of Representatives hearing about voting in America, the potential for polling place quality and restrictions on opportunities to vote to interfere with free and fair access to the ballot. Voting rights in America exists in a state of existential peril, posing a threat to U.S. democracy. Before the 2020 presidential election, the former president of the United States proclaimed that the only way he could lose the election would be because it was rigged. He repeatedly said that voters who chose to vote by mail or cast absentee ballots were likely to be illegal votes. Since losing the elections in the U.S. House, Senate, and the White House, Republican-controlled legislatures have passed a slew of new laws limiting access to the ballot. The Supreme Court also recently issued a new judgment on voting rights indicating that two provisions of an Arizona voting law that restricts how ballots can be cast do not violate the historic Voting Rights Act that bars regulations that result in racial discrimination. The ruling will limit the ability of minorities to challenge state laws in the future that they say are discriminatory. And just this past week, women voting rights activists engaged in civil disobedience at the U.S. Capitol calling for the adoption of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore protections as well as address new aspects to state laws that also undermine the credibility of an election in addition to original protections such as preclearance, which have been gutted by the John Roberts-led Supreme Court in the 2013 Shelby County case. Welcome to the Thought Project, Kevin Morris. Thanks. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, You could not be more centrally positioned on one of the biggest battles since the civil rights movement for racial justice in the 1960s that successfully sought and had adoption of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. How did you get interested in voting and its suppression in America? Yeah, that's a great question. When I started at the Brennan Center, I had a background in quantitative research and statistical methodology, but I actually didn't know very much about voting at all. Before I was here, I worked at the the Port Authority 
and worked as an economic analyst in the planning department there. But my master's degree was in urban planning, and I've always been really interested in, in space and segregation and in how kind of our built environment and the structure of our neighborhoods bleeds over into all these different aspects of our social life. And there's a huge amount of that when it comes to voting. And so I've kind of, over my time at the Brennan Center, have been able to draw both on, on what I've learned here about voting rights and, and this push, like you just said, that we're seeing in the past few years to restrict access and also understanding it as part of a, a larger phenomenon that kind of colors so much of our social world. Um, and so Like much, the structural racism. Yeah, and how, how people are divided up over space and how race is usually what we use to, uh, to divide people up, both politically and socially. And how are you pursuing your research in, in sociology in the, in the PhD program at the Graduate Center? Yeah, so I just wrapped up my first year in the sociology program. Um, and I, I have kind of one foot planted in sociology and another foot planted in political science. And the reason that I decided to enroll in the sociology program and, and was more interested in pursuing sociology at the academic level is that I think that these two fields really can talk to each other a lot. And there are a lot of tremendous scholars in sociology and political science that are part of this conversation. And, and I wanted to kind of develop my sociological chops, knowing that I would continue to be involved in political science while at the Brennan Center. Um, I wanted to kind of beef up that side of my theoretical training and, and statistical training as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm headed into the second year starting, starting in a few weeks now. Yeah, you couldn't be in a better place in the Graduate Center. I mean, uh, with regard to when you look at census data, demographics, and economics, like two political scientists come to mind that are both sociologists, and that includes John Mullenkoff, who's the director of the Center for Urban Research, and Janet Gornick, who's the director of the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. So there is that look and research at the Graduate Center that you don't see a lot of places in the same institution. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, the two ties between the program are great. John is actually my my faculty mentor, uh, my faculty advisor, and he's opened up a lot of space for me to take the projects that I'm interested in and look at them from both a political science and a sociological perspective. And yeah, that's one of, I mean, of course, one of the strengths of the Graduate Center and one of the strengths of the CUNY system generally is, is the role that it plays in the city is such that it can't be restricted to disciplinary boundaries because of kind of the, the public-facing role. Right. Yeah, the, the inter-engagement, the interdisciplinary work that goes on at the Graduate Center. That's wonderful. So, but you have a full-time job and you're a qualitative researcher at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. And you also testified before Congress uh, about voting suppression in America in June. How many states thus far have passed laws limiting access to the ballot? So far this year, we've seen bills passed and, and passed into law in 14 states. And we've seen bills introduced in 48 states across the country. The legislative session isn't even over yet. We know that Texas, the governor of Texas has called them back into a special session to try and pass restrictive voting laws. 14 states around the country so far in 2021, but 
that's not going to be the final count, unfortunately, based on based on trends around the country. So these states are not just adopting laws to limit access to the ballot. In Arizona, for example, laws were adopted that now give authority to political aspects of the Arizona political structure to actually ultimately certify elections now, almost an ex post facto ability, which has been suggested by observers and analysts. These changes pose a credible threat to legitimate results. What, in your opinion, I mean, I know you're a quantitative analyst, but surely the Brennan Center is looking at why these laws are being adopted. And this goes well beyond the 1965 Voting Rights Act and and any measure in Congress that is going to effectively address this will have to go beyond just advancing and adopting the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is definitely, it's a major part of what needs to happen. There are other pieces as well. And and you just referenced the, the Brnovich decision that came down from the Supreme Court a few weeks ago um, that undermines a a part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that would not be protected under the VRAA, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, Act, which is historically under the Voting Rights Act, you could bring a challenge against a law if there were racially disparate outcomes to that law, but that is now the Supreme Court. It's been nullified by the Roberts Court. The, The VRA is a central piece of the federal fight to protect uh, HR1 or the fourth right. is a central piece of this. Um, so but- to reestablish preclearance and, and everything that was contained in the original act. And to update it. So the part of what we're doing is working on, um, we have with a whole bunch of other people around the country are working on a new formula to figure out which jurisdictions ought to be covered under that preclearance condition. Um, kind of based on voting practices from the past decade or so. So these changes really pose a credible threat, and it feels like this is an existential threat to U.S. democracy. There's been a lot of discussion about Texas and the the activities there in the state legislature, and as the country now is aware, the, the Democratic Caucus of the Texas State House left the state of Texas came to Washington, D.C. during the past week and using their voices to talk to members of Congress, particularly in the U.S. Senate, to convince them of the necessity to adopt a federal law. And as probably some of our listeners, and you certainly know that right now, Joe Manchin, a U.S. Senator, Democratic caucus member from West Virginia, as well as uh, Kristen Sinema, the U.S. Senator from Arizona, also a Democrat, oppose a cutout on filibuster reform to address a Voting Rights Act and pass one. So just this past week, there were a number of women from the moral majority, uh, Reverend Barber from North Carolina, they came to the Congress and they engaged in civil disobedience and there was an arrest action in Washington. So it seems like things are beginning to escalate around the organizing aspect of this, but 
if there's no legislation adopted in the U.S. Senate, what could be foreseen in next year's midterm elections? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's hard to it's hard to gauge how it will play out. Um, it, a lot of it depends on COVID as well. So a lot of a lot of the restrictions that we're seeing this year are kind of undoing um, things that made it a lot easier for a lot of people to vote during a pandemic in 2020. And depending on what the world looks like next year, if early voting and mail voting is as much more difficult as we expect it to be, that could be a really big problem and it could leave a lot of people on the sidelines. Right. And in addition to that, we're going to be going through reapportionment because of the census. And that's another dynamic that some election forecasters project that the Democrats probably have already lost seven to nine seats easily because of population movement and the loss of seats in mostly blue states. And we're seeing there are some people that are arguing that, yeah, you know, these restrictions are going to make it harder to vote, but if people really care about voting, they'll find a way to do it, which that on its own when it comes to voting is is not entirely true for people that, you know, have childcare duties or work. Our out. shift workers. Yeah, our, exactly. Right. Putting all of that to one side, the redistricting, the reapportionment. Right. And out-organized gerrymandering is what we say. You can't, that's going to be done in state legislatures without federal protection. There's no get out the vote campaign that can can overcome those new lines. Right, exactly. So um, let's talk about Texas. You've actually written a journal article on access to the ballot in Texas. And can you tell us why Texas is one of the most difficult places to access the ballot if you're a minority? Yeah, I mean, Texas, and we see this in a lot of places, and and a number of scholars have written pretty extensively on um, the fact that we actually see restrictive bills going into place often in places that are more competitive. Um, And so, of course, we saw this in Georgia this year after it went blue for the first time in a generation. And and Texas is no exception. Texas is one of the the most racially diverse parts of the country. Um, There are different political coalitions and and that's been true for a, a long time, but there's been a large Latino and a large black. Population. Right, right. And so kind of the presence of different racial and ethnic minorities have, have long led um, a certain amount of backlash, um, again, from the white power structure against minorities organizing. And those minorities have posed a, a threat to the racial order in a way that, that they haven't in other states that are more white and more homogenous. So not only do we see it in Texas, and I know that there's like a Texas voting rights project there. Georgia also has one as well. It's interesting that both of these states are are trending purple to blue, and maybe Texas is a little ways out from that, but clearly it's a threat. And that in the 2018 midterms, uh, the Democrats probably lost some opportunities to pick up seats in the Houston, uh, Fort Worth, Dallas regions because they have become increasingly blue. But just as you remarked, if the gerrymandering will probably be uh, reinforced with new lines through reapportionment that will happen at the state legislative level, in the coming new year. So before we get to the November midterms, there's going to be completely new lines drawn in several states 
And if they're Republican-dominated, it would seem that the Democrats are going to be on the losing end of those lines. Yeah, I think that's right. What I will emphasize is that gerrymandering, you know, it's something that that both Democrats do, too. Yeah, right. So it's. It is one of the things that we push for at the Brennan Center is nonpartisan commissions. Right. Because it kind of comes back to a catchphrase that you hear often, or at least if you hang out in the spaces that I hang out, you hear often is that, you know, voters should choose their politicians and politicians shouldn't choose their voters. And the gerrymandering allows the politicians to draw their own districts. And we see it on both sides. There's a certain, some parties are... You know, they're more blatant about it. Yeah, but um, we've definitely seen it on both sides. And, and this is one of the frustrating things about a lot of election reform is that you hear people like Mitch McConnell saying that H.R. 1 is a Democratic power grab. Um, and that's not true. It, it ties everyone's hands equally um, and takes a lot of the, the power around elections out of the hands of politicians and puts them in people that are going to create a more level playing field. Right. As a matter of fact, the United States is one of the outliers when it comes to non-political managed elections in the Western world. And I, for one, have worked on elections all over the world. And as a person who espouses uh, nonpartisan electoral commissions, and we just went through an election here in New York City run by the Board of Elections, which is absolutely political, that created a major blunder during running of the first ranked choice voting electoral system in the Democratic primary, and they mixed in votes. That was a test run and didn't take it out before they went with the final votes on the ranked choice number one candidates. And so that caused an uproar. And apparently Albany's now taking the initiative to address that calling for a civilian-controlled, nonpartisan, non-political board, which I completely support. It's kind of an adage in the election world that, you know, it is is not blue states aren't doing everything perfectly and red states not. It's definitely it, it's more complicated than that, um, and a lot of times it doesn't it doesn't fall cleanly along lines. It's more of yeah. the political side of it. What's politicized. So you testified before the House Administration Subcommittee on Elections in June. I know that you gave an interview to the GC, and we we wrote a news story about it. For those who maybe haven't read the story, why don't you tell us what that was like and share with our listeners some of the questions that you were really struck by that really resonated with members of the subcommittee. Yeah, it was so it was part of a a push in support of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which I know we touched on earlier, that would restore the preclearance condition. Right. Section five of the Voting Rights Act um, that we're hearing will probably come up for a vote this fall. And part of how this legislation gets passed, how lots of legislation gets passed, is there's a a period of congressional record building um, so that if a bill gets challenged in court, there is ample evidence of Congress's intent in passing it, what problems they were trying to fix so that the justices can... can what they were addressing. What exactly. was their intent? With so part, of, part yeah. of my testimony, or my testimony was focused on some of the research that I've done over the past few years 
um, especially in the wake of the 2013 Supreme Court decision that, that nullified. On Shelby, uh, yes. The Shelby County decision. Yeah. It was tremendously exciting as someone who, who considers himself a scholar who is doing public-facing, publicly engaged research to have the opportunity to be part of that legislative process was just, it was, it was very, very exciting to see my research used for that goal. And yeah, as a first year graduate student, it's hard to, hard to imagine a, a, a greater honor than getting to do that. It was an interesting experience going into it. I was kind of told I was there to get things on the record, not necessarily try and change anyone's mind, not try and right. anyone to vote for it, but rather to get these facts about racial disparities and, and racially disparate turnout effects that I've documented in the number of different studies that I've done. Um, and, you know, there was one question came up from a Congress member um, who said, you know, turnout was higher than ever before in 2020. What are we complaining about? Shouldn't we just be celebrating this? And it's something that we're seeing bubbling up a little bit more over the summer is turnout was so high. Why do we care? These, these bills must not matter at all. But we actually know that the racial turnout gap was just as large in 2020 as it was in, in 2016. So we saw turnout go up among black voters, among Latino voters, but it also went up among white voters. So the, the relative turnout of black voters and Latino voters didn't, didn't increase very much at all. Right. Yes, I can uh, relate to you on testifying, having, a, I used to be a civil rights, human rights uh, advocate inside the Beltway and have testified many times. But it is an exciting experience, and it's not surprising given the stature of the uh, Brennan Center and on this topic specifically, voter oppression in the United States. So it's a nod to your research and a nod to the Brennan Center. What are your thoughts about, let's just share with listeners how racial minorities are deprived in the electoral process, like there's less money appropriated to minority districts, is that correct with regard to election process? Uh, okay. There's fewer polling stations. Could you share like the characteristics of what what happens actually? Yeah, so some of it is differential resources. Um, we right. did some research a couple of years ago. Um, it was published last year, I guess, that showed that actually voters of color live in counties where there aren't fewer resources, but other researchers have shown that those resources are worse. Those polling places and machines are more like more, more mediocre, less. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. But then also when it comes to, to linguistic issues, um, if you don't speak English particularly well, but you don't live in a city with a large population that speaks your language, you're likely to show up on election day and have to fill out your ballot in English. and you're not required to speak English perfectly to be a citizen of the United States. And so there's often not adequate there's language barriers. Yeah. And then part of what we're seeing this year is especially targeted responses, targeted disenfranchising legislation that's going into place. And, and it wasn't part of the Georgia bill that was eventually passed. And, and it has, as of right now, dropped out of the Texas bill. But we saw legislators trying to end Sunday voting. Um, right. No, the black voters in particular, there's a, a long history of political organizing in the black church of get out the vote campaign right. on, on Sunday. People go to they go to souls to the polls. Right? Yep, exactly. Yes. Souls to the polls. So we also see there are very particular 
ways that the minority vote is undermined in, in a federal court case in North Carolina from a few years back, the judge said that uh, black voters were targeted with what he called surgical precision. And that had to do with gerrymandering and their North right. Carolina voter ID laws as right. well. So politicians know exactly who votes for them and they know the ways that they like to vote and how to, how to make it just a little bit harder. And you don't have to totally disenfranchise a whole population. All you need to do is, is shave off a few votes here and a few votes there and suddenly non-white representation is undermined. In another example, like in Georgia, they're prohibiting anybody bringing water or food to a voter standing in line to vote. I mean, I saw some really interesting biblical interpretations of that saying, well, what would Christ have to say about that? Um, you know, th- these politicians really weren't thinking about any generosity, Christian or or elsewhere. You know, it's just absolutely brazen. And I must say, if someone who was a child, I was a child during the this, this early 60s, during the civil rights movement. And to see this happen in the way it's happened is stunning on one hand, but also knowing that it's been a part of the American political and social compact for a long time. And unfortunately, our former president really lit, he lit a fuse, for sure. Absolutely. It is not new. It is not a new fight. And part of, part of President Trump's bid to stay in power and his bid to undermine uh, voting rights last year was pretty explicitly predicated on attacking vote by mail, on attacking uh, urban areas. So we saw them launch challenges in places like Detroit, right. Philadelphia. And um, lost every, wasn't it, they lost every challenge to every election except one. And it was the U.S. Supreme Court that said, oh, it's fine. You guys want to monitor. I think that was in Pennsylvania. That's fine. Go back and monitor. So it was really a non-decision. The court system actually worked pretty well when it came to making sure that things went well last year, um, and they didn't let the Trump administration get away with too much in terms of restricting the right to vote last year. But of course, we're we're seeing, like we've been talking about this whole time, this backlash that's been happening right. in 2021, which was forecasted by the former president himself saying the only way I can lose is if it's rigged. And if you're mailing in votes, then you're, then, then those are rigged too, you know? And so it just delegitimized all these different aspects of elections that were actually not true at all. So now we're in this moment. We don't have a lot of runway runway left. There's not that much time on the congressional calendar. There's a legislative calendar. They're going to be going out for summer recess, like in the first two weeks in August. At some point, they will leave. And it would seem that right now, a lot of focus is on this bipartisan reconciliation infrastructure package and then the Democratic infrastructure project, which is mostly human infrastructure A lot of attention on that, soaking up a lot of time, which is appropriate. It takes time to move these bills, but there's not a lot of runway left. And some analysts are saying that a voting rights legislation package has got to be adopted by the end of September. 
What are you hearing from your perch at the Brennan Center? Are you hearing anything about efforts to address this? We know some of the public efforts, but perhaps behind the scenes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm somewhat bound in what I can talk about publicly. Uh, sure. What I can say is this is still very much an ongoing conversation. Senate staffers are still very engaged with making sure that, that progress is made on this uh, in the coming months. You know, things need to move quickly, um, but there's still engagement around it. And last week, President Biden gave a major speech in, in Philadelphia on the need for voting rights. And over the last week, we've seen that that has helped. We'll put it that way. There is certainly kind of a, a renewed focus on it as well. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about my my boss or my, my former boss. She had her Senate confirmation hearing last week. She was just nominated for second uh, circuit court of appeals judgeship. What and was her name? Her name is Mirna Perez. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So okay. we, there is, there is, there are things moving. High, very highly regarded. I understand. Yeah. yeah. So Mirna had heard her hearing last week. And so there is still a fair amount of focus on, on voting rights. Um, you open up the New York times and you're right that this week we're all reading about infrastructure, but in DC, there are definite, there's still movement on all of uh, the fight to make sure that voters are protected. And, and I'm sure that the leadership conference on civil rights is doing work on this. And of course, Benita Gupta, its former president, is now like associate attorney general. So there are some good friends in the Department of Justice on these matters. What's next for you, Kevin Morris? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm trying to rest a tiny bit where I can, catching fits and snatches here and there as I uh, get ready for my my second year um, in the sociology program. What I'm so lucky to get to do between working at Brennan and being in the Graduate Center is I, I have space right now to think about what sorts of academic projects uh, do I need to be doing in the classroom that can help our advocacy and, and how can I make sure that, that, that my scholarly work is also very much in conversation with kind of the national mood and, and pushes for legislation around the country. So I'm, okay. I'm sort of sketching out next year's uh, next year's papers at this point. Understood. Very exciting. Well, we reserve the right to have you back. Yeah, I'd be um, happy let, to. Let's see what happens after this congressional, this Congress, and see what happens on the voting rights front. And when that time comes about, we will be calling you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Ph.D. student Kevin Morris, who is beginning his second year this fall in sociology at the Graduate Center, CUNY. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Kevin Wolf of CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.